Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala Sayyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. So last week we started talking about how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam encouraged the youth, the children around him and the youth around him in regards to worship. And we have begun talking about this idea that there's a number of building blocks. The first is that he trained them gradually sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The second is that he created positive associations with the act of worship. And the third is that he rewarded children for worship. So, uh, and then that's all we did because we got off onto the whole hadith about seven years old and ten years old as regards to training a child to pray. The main thing here to recognize and to realize is that the or the original state of affairs for a child is that they know God. Okay? So children have a natural purity to them, they have a natural goodness to them. And generally speaking, our goal is to not ruin that and to not get in the way of it and to nurture it in any sort of way that we can. And so when we talk about teaching children how to pray, that should really be the focus. Uh, we want to do what we need to do in order to encourage them to pray. Around the age of seven is when they should start to be able to understand what it is to pray, why they pray generally, very generally, right? They usually call this Sinnat uh, Tamyiz. It's the age when they have Tamyiz. They can start to distinguish generally between right and wrong, around seven. And then we, put, we, we encourage them, we train them, we try to develop them in that way until they get to the age of 10 and then we really push them to try to be regular with their prayers. One of the things to think about here is related to this narration that he mentions that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, take care of your children and train them to pray and get them in the habit of doing good because doing good is a habit. Get them in the habit of doing good because doing good is a habit. And this I think is one of the important points to focus on is that what we learn when we're younger tends to stick with us. And if we are able to be regular in our prayer when we're younger, then it makes it usually easier to be regular in our prayer when we're older. It becomes a habit. If you're from the age of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, you're praying all the time. When you're 15, 20, 25, prayer is going to be like part of who you are. right? So getting used to that is, is important. And one of the things the Prophet said is that uh, one of the people who will be in the shade of Allah on the day when there is no shade but His is Shabun Nasha'afi Ibadatillah, right? Is a young person who grew up in the worship of Allah. It's a young person who grew up in the worship of Allah. So it's good to do these things. Um, it's not the same, you know? I've said this before sometimes. You might not have to agree with me, it's okay. But I feel, you know, in our community sometimes we have a, in a sense sometimes, like a glorification of converts. So, you know, like, look at this person, they changed their life and they did this and that and they became a Muslim. And like, that's true, that's, that's true and that's good. But, you know what else is really amazing? Is someone who literally worshipped Allah their whole life. Without like a single anything, you know. There's people like that. There's a lot of people like that in our community. And, you know, they didn't like have to... Some people, of course, this is not to like say some people are better than other people and make categories and all this stuff. 
It's just to say, like, don't forget those people. Like, I would take my wife over me any day. Someone who grew up worshipping Allah and being active in the community and involved in things and so on and so forth. That's much stronger. Like, if you had to put on the, on the scales, like, whose dua should we take? You should take her dua. And if my, you ask me to make dua, then you should just be like, you go ask her to make dua. <laughs> it's different. The, 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 the person's iman is different. You know, something I've noticed, for example, with a lot of converts I've talked to, is especially people who didn't grow up worshiping God. Some people converted knowing God, right? Like some people, they were Christians, they were Jews, whatever they were, and they really knew God and they loved God. And then they became a Muslim because they felt it was it was more true, right? Some people, like myself, there's no religion, and I felt with like myself and with other converts I've talked to, sometimes you see it. Like you find, you'll meet Muslims, they're in all kinds of problems. They don't pray, they're in all kinds of issues. Addicted to this, that, making all kinds of mistakes, relationships, everything else. And still I'll meet them and I'll look at them and I'm like, man, there's so much good in this person. Like there's something still in the way that they were raised, it's like really sound. There's something that's really good there. And they make all these mistakes and they still think they're a Muslim. They don't have like any issue, right? I've met a lot of converts who like, the first time something starts going a little bit not sound in their practice, they start questioning if they're even Muslim anymore. You know? So these are interesting kind of things. But anyways, point is, we, we want to raise our children to grow up as believers, to live their lives as believers, to be committed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet He quotes here, Imam Ghazali wrote about the importance of training and parenting. He said, Adopting an effective method for training children is extremely important and necessary. It is because a child is Allah's trust in parents' hands and the child's heart is like a nice, clean, and simple mirror which, although is devoid of any types of impressions or shapes is capable of accepting the influence of all types of impressions and influences and it can be inclined towards anything you like. Therefore, if good habits are inculcated in the child then the child, after gaining such good upbringing achieves the real success of this life and of the life hereafter. So what is the main point that he's making? There's a couple of them. <clears throat> Number one is that the default for the child is that they're pure and good. They're clean slate. Second is that the child is a responsibility and a manna in the hands of the parent. And the parent has to do everything that they can to help the child. And inshallah, if they have a good upbringing, it will help them the most. I've said this before, I'll say it again. To me, to me the most humbling and the most difficult thing about parenting is that it's you in the end you know you look at your child and you're like that's my child the good and the bad that's my child like I understand that naza and I understand that naza and I understand that naza I don't know the word for naza in English it's such a good word <laughs> like that uh, it's like when you look at a graph and it spikes it's the naza like you know that like sometimes a kid will do something and you're like oh yeah I know that one they're not even supposed to be doing it, but I kind of laugh. I'm like, okay, yeah, I recognize that. It's all you. Like, and then sometimes you see good in them. And you see them like make dua, or you see them do things, or they tell you that they did something that you didn't even know they were doing. You know? And you're like, subhanAllah, how did they come up with the idea to do that? And all of it, and like so much of it in the end, they're taking from us. So people, the, the one advice, I, I, I don't give it parenting advice in general. The one advice, parenting advice I give is 
do everything you can to improve yourself. This is your number one parenting advice. Probably the only one you're going to get. Do everything to improve yourself. And then, you know, we do what we can for our children. And they have their own. They're going to have to stand in front of Allah too. That's the hardest thing to accept, you know. Allah help us. May Allah give us patience and Allah give us the ability to accept things that happen. You think sometimes about the prophets. Like, look at all the prophets. If you go through the stories, there's an important lesson to be learned. I'd say the Nuh salam, his son didn't follow him. Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, or his father, right, or his uncle, depending on the opinion you take. Sayyidina Lut salam, his wife. Who else? All of them you see it, right? For close family members and they're prophets. So, you know, we do what we can and everyone's in front of Allah. I think we've been reading with uh, Sheikh Abdullah last week, right now in our Qira'ah, we're in Surah Yusuf. We just finished Surah Yusuf. Surah Yusuf, like, when you really sit and think about Surah Yusuf, it's really remarkable. You pay attention very closely to what's being said and you realize that Sayyidina Yaqub was a prophet, right? So, you feel like he understood everything that was happening, actually. Not like it's happening and he didn't realize it and then he understood everything that's happening. When you read it carefully, the things that he says and the comments he makes and stuff, you're like, subhanAllah. But there's like, if something is qadr, it's qadr. You can't change it. Like it's, there's only, some things we can control, then we can't control. He tells them different things, you know. I'm scared to send him with you. The wolf is going to eat him, so on and so forth. Do this. When you go over there, come enter from different doors and all this stuff. He gives them different advice and things, but he knows like this thing's going to play out. How it's going to play out? Because also the dream was there in the beginning. Don't forget, right? The dream was there in the beginning. It already played out. So, like, subhanAllah, sometimes this is another thing, parenting that's really difficult. Really difficult. May Allah help us. <clears throat> he used to teach, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, them what to say in prayers. He used to teach them what to say in prayers. Hassan, the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu, alayhim salam. And then Hassan, grandson of the Prophet he said, the Messenger of Allah said, he taught me some words to say in the witted prayer. O oh Allah, guide me among those whom you have guided, pardon me among those you have pardoned, turn to me in friendship among those on whom you have turned in friendship. The usual dua people make in witted. Right? He taught him the dua. And he was very young when the Prophet ﷺ passed away. Like probably under 10. So the Prophet ﷺ sat with his grandson, he taught him this dua. And so, of course, this is part of worship too, right? So, again, like it's something that we mentioned from the very beginning is that so much of the way that the Prophet ﷺ is dealing with children, and so much of the way that children are raised in religion is relational. It's very largely relational. Like you have a relationship. The Prophet has a relationship with them. He loves them. He cares about them. He jokes with them. He laughs with them. They joke with him. They laugh with him. He teaches them a dua. So now they remember the dua. For the rest of their life, they're going to remember that dua. They're going to remember that interaction they had with the Prophet. And I mentioned, this is, I think, one of the challenges of how do we do Islamic studies for children? It's one of the challenges, I think. Um, 
There's another narration that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ibn Abbas came to pray with him and he stood on the Prophet Sallallahu's left side. It says the Prophet took hold of him and made him stand on the right. This is very simple. Right? He goes to stand with him, he comes to stand next to him. The Prophet Sallallahu takes him, has him stand on the right side. So now he's always going to remember that, right? If you pray with someone, they're the Imam, you put them on the right side. So this is a very natural way of education, right? And maybe there's, it's important to kind of like step back for a moment on, on certain things. What is required for the average Muslim to know? What is required? The average Muslim is required to know what they need to know about God. It's about a page. And the Prophets and the Day of Judgment. It's about a page. Ustad Fuad taught the class Creed of Oneness in four sessions. But that Creed of Oneness is about a page. That's what you need to know. Average Muslim, that's what you need to know in Creed. What do you need to know in prayer? Is you need to know how do I make wudu properly? What breaks it? How do I keep it? Uh, how do I how do I pray? What what constitutes a mistake in prayer that I have to start over? What's the kind of mistake that I have to make sujood sahum? How do I pray when I'm traveling? If I have some money, what do I need to know about zakat? If I'm going to make hajj, how to do hajj? You know, if I do business, there's certain business things I need to know. That's pretty much it. And you need to know matters of spirituality. Like, I'm supposed to be generous. I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm not supposed to hate people. I'm not supposed to be jealous. These kind of things. That's what a regular everyday Muslim is supposed to know. That's it, actually. Like, yeah, we, we come and we do things and we teach classes and everything. It's more like for the reminder and to be together and to remember Allah. But in the end, do you, need, do you really have to know all that stuff? No, you don't. As long as you know Allah, you just worship Allah. And you'll meet, when you travel and you go places, you meet people like that, right? You meet people, like they don't know a whole lot. You're not going to sit with them and have like this really deep philosophical conversation. Because they don't need to. The story I told you guys before, about when I was sitting at Fajr, and the guy asked me, you know, I, he asked, what is the Iqamah? And I told him the Iqamah is in a few minutes, and he's like, where are you from? It's in Egypt. And I was like, I'm from America. And he's like, Muslim? I'm like, yeah, I'm Muslim. It's Fajr prayer. Like, right here, the Fajr prayer in the masjid. You know? Unless the CIA has like a huge bankroll on the Muslim I'm sitting here. So, and then he's like, uh, he's like, so, Muslim. And I was like, yeah. And then I'm like, but I wasn't always a Muslim. And he's like, okay, what were you? And I told him I wasn't anything. And he just like completely shocked. He's like, Zay. <laughs> it's really beautiful actually right? It's really beautiful Like he probably just works in like someone's building Cleans the cars Does grocery, does errands for people That's his whole life Like the guy who was in our building the, the doorman in our building He couldn't read and write Children would go to school All day long he just like Someone tells him go get this for me He goes and gets it He comes back All the prayers you see him in the masjid You're not going to have any conversation with him On like the details of theology and stuff but if you have any question about whether or not this person's a believer, this person is a believer, right? Their belief is on a different level than all these people philosophizing. So does the average Muslim have to know huge amounts of things about Islam? No. But if the average Muslim starts having issues in their faith, then the requirement upon them becomes more. Now you have to study more and more and more and more until your issues get resolved, and then you can just live your faith. Just live it. Worship Allah, 
sense a lot on the Prophet ﷺ, it's fine. Why am I saying all this? Because there's different ways to learn. One way to learn, if you're trying to gain like an academic understanding, is to sit in a class and learn. And obviously if this is going to be your life, if it's going to be your studies and everything else, then you have to learn that way. That's how you have to. And for those basic things, it's good to take them and learn them properly. You know, spend a couple hours and be done with it for life. So actually most of the questions that people have on a daily basis are answered in those basic classes. You don't have to ask them for the rest of your life. You just learn and then you're fine. And you get answer a few things here and there and you're good. So most of the way the Prophet ﷺ is dealing with these young people is very interaction, inter relational, this is my point. So like not everyone's in a classroom. It's just you go with the Prophet ﷺ, you live with him, he teaches you the du'a here, you see him. You see what it looks like to, actually, to, to live in the world as a believer. You're going to do this, you're not going to do that, you're going to move this way, don't move that way. You learn like the etiquettes of it and stuff. And that's how their relationship with the Prophet is. And they see him and they see him pray. And they see him cry in prayer. And they see him make dua. And they see this. And they see... I mean, that's, that's it, right? So, you know, there's a... Uh, and this is what makes education difficult. Part of what I struggled with when I was teaching at the school. I love the kids. It's not unique to the school. I had the same problem when I taught at Bayan. In the master's program. I don't like teaching Islam in a classroom where you have to give people tests and grades. And like, they don't want to be there. I don't, I don't like it. It just feels wrong to me. You know, even if it's a master's program, people are training to become like, you know, chaplains and imams and stuff. But sometimes they're already imams and chaplains. They just want to pass the class so they can have a master's degree. Right? Like this, most people go to school so they can just get a degree. It's going to increase their pay. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. So I don't like it. I have to sit here and give you assignments. And Like, are you here to learn or not? If you're here to learn, then we learn. If you're not here to learn, then... Like, we don't need that. So this is a, it's an issue. This is, uh, like classical Islamic education didn't happen like that really. You sit with the person, you learn from them. They might ask you some questions and things to make sure you understand. They might ask you to explain some things you understand. But it's not like you sit and you take a test and stuff. Fail the class, now you have to retake it, cost $30,000 a year, <laughs> stuff like that, you know? So the Prophet ﷺ is teaching in a very natural way. They say, for example, that they used to just train them to do these things. When it comes to one of the female companions said, we used to make wool toys for the kids. They would encourage the kids to fast in Ramadan. And we make these toys for them. And if they started to cry, then we give them the toys to distract them. And then they would they'd be okay until Maghrib time. <laughs> I read this hadith and I was like, subhanAllah. Like imagine this, what she's, you have to really think about what she's saying. What is the what is the what is the the indication of this? The indication of this is kids didn't have toys. They didn't have toys. You just sit around and you live with everyone else, and you do what everyone else does, and you get bored. It's your problem. Figure out how to not be bored. So I always tell my son, he's like, I'm bored, Baba. I'm like, Why are you telling me? <laughs> That's your problem to figure out. It's not my problem to figure out. Like if you figure it out now, it'll be good for you the rest of your life. If you don't figure it out now, it's going to be a problem for you the rest of your life. It's for you to figure out, you know. My, and then I was thinking, this, this actually reminded me of my mom. You know, some of you know my, my mom, may Allah guide her and give her good. She grew up in like a really country area of Canada. And she still has the toy. 
when when my when our kids visit her sometimes, she'll take it out and let them play with it. She had one toy growing up, and she was only allowed to play for play with it for an hour on on Sunday. That's it. It's one toy. It's like a little dog. It has like some hair on it. You can like move it back and forth a little bit. <laughs> That's it. It's still with her. Subhanallah. It's one toy. Sunday for one hour. That's it. The whole rest of the, I'm like, what are you doing the rest of the week? She's like, work. <laughs> you know, work in the field, grow the, grow the things that we eat, you know, paint the fence, fix the house, whatever you need to do. Like, that's whatever you need to do to survive. And I asked her, I'm like, so you guys, like, your, your mom didn't, her dad died before she was born. Your mom didn't have to, like, convince you guys to do stuff? And she, she sat and she's thinking about it. She's like, no, we just did it. And I was like, really? <laughs> Man, this is a different different thing, you know? She was like, yeah, we just knew. Like, we don't have anything. And, like, this is how we survive. Otherwise, your house is going to break and your fence is going to break. And you're not going to have food in the shed when winter time comes. And you're just going to be hungry, you know, more than you already are. And, like, you just, you figure it out, you know? You do what you're supposed to do. I was like, subhanAllah. And then reading this, I'm like, I read this, of course, I have my usual extreme response. I told my wife, I'm like, all the toys out. <laughs> One toy. <laughs> One toy in Ramadan. Get, get them through it. Skiing children, they have like 8 million toys. So they can't think straight. They don't appreciate it. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Why are they teaching children how to fast? Why is it so important? One of the main things you learn in fasting is control, right? Restraint. Discipline. One of the most important things that people learn in life is this issue. Even I don't think I don't know if it's in here, but they did like research. They've done research on these things. I think it is in here. Yeah, where they like with four-year-olds and five-year-olds and stuff, and they put things in front of them, and they see which of them can delay gratification. And then they do it like a long-term study, you know, and they look how did these people fare later on in life, and the ones who were able to delay their gratification when they were like four years old did better 20 years later than the ones who did it. This is a major issue. How do I learn to control myself? Now, if we put this in context now, it's very challenging. You know, I'm not judging anyone. I'm not telling anyone what to do. Allah help us. It's very challenging. Because this thing completely demolishes self-control. I mean, if we're honest, most adults, their lives are ruined with it. Forget kids. Like, all the self-control, all the discipline is gone. You know? It's very scary, subhanAllah. So, but they're teaching them to fast because it gives you this discipline, gives them that strength. And then that strength is going to benefit them as they get older, as they go to do different things. You know? It's really interesting sometimes when you talk to people who are not Muslim about fasting and stuff. You realize like people in America who are privileged, they don't really know what it means to be hungry. Like at all, I'm not talking about starving, I'm talking about just like actually feeling hunger. They haven't had food for like two hours, they're like, oh, I'm starving. We gotta get something to eat, you know? I'm like, well, you ate two hours ago, like, and then they're snacking every 45 minutes. This is like zero discipline in the whole thing. That's one good thing about diets, I think. You know? <laughs> diets force you to have discipline. At least you're like, okay, I'm not gonna eat this, I'm gonna eat this, so on. So they, they teach that fasting. Number The other thing they did is to create positive associations. Positive associations. So you consider the statement of 
the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Arihna biha ya Bilal. Arihna biha ya Bilal. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam after Bilal makes a then. Then the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Everyone's getting ready to pray. It's time for the iqama. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam would tell him, biha ya Bilal. O Bilal, give us ease by it. What is it? Hmm? The prayer. The prayer is it, right? So what is the what is the association that people are getting with prayer? Ease, beauty, joy. I love doing this, so on and so forth, right? Some some of the things that we say, like, for example, I try not to tell my kids that I have to pray. You know, like it's also a time to be like, oh, I'll be right back. I have to pray. I try not to say it that way because then they feel it's true. I do have to pray, right? Like, you know, it's uh, it's amr. There's you have to do it, but I try to say like I need to pray. So there's an under, maybe subtly, subconsciously, there's an understanding of this is something that they need. It's not just something they do it because they have to do it, or how do we talk about it? You know, do we tell like, oh man, I have to pray right now or something like that. We're really just kind of like, what is the language that's used about it? This is applying, this is this applies to prayer. This also applies to a lot of other things, by the way. And this is one of the issues I think that's difficult for us because as a community, we've gone through a number of traumas, perhaps on a communal level. And it creates issues. Because symbols are important. Okay. So in some ways, prayer is a symbol. Prayer is one of the most fundamental symbols of Islam. Right? The Qur'an is a symbol. But sometimes people are like, oh, they just have a Qur'an in their house and they don't, even, they don't even read it. Alhamdulillah, they have a Qur'an in their house. The symbol is there. And sometimes you go into like a Muslim business, they have, some Qur'an on the, they have a Qur'an on the counter. I'm like, this is good. Do they ever open the Qur'an? No, but it's on the counter. So there's an understanding of, there's a respect for this book. There's a blessing in this book. I want this book in my workplace. I want this book in my home. I want this thing hanging from my car, for example. These symbols are important. When you take away symbols of everything, there's nothing left. One of the biggest symbols is the religious teacher. This is my point. So like we have, we have a challenge because there's like some hesitation, you know? Different traumas happen, different problems happen, you hear different stories, so on and so forth. And it becomes like, you become really concerned about it, right? But when children grow up loving a religious teacher, who's like a good, sound person, that's really good for them. It's really good for them. Of course, it's also challenging if the opposite happens. That's the, that's the difficulty, right? If they're not like a good religious teacher, and then there ends up being a problem, it's going to have a big hurt for them too. But the point is the symbol is important. The prayer is a symbol too. So when he says, He's making a positive association with this, right? Uh, there's a cool story that um, the Prophet them was traveling outside of Medina. And they came across some other travelers. And he asked them, who are you? It's a funny, like, again, imagine because you don't know anyone, right? Like if you're in Arabia and you heard about the message of the Prophet and maybe some Muslims came to your area and you accepted Islam. She's never seen the Prophet right? Even in the story of Medina when they make the Hijra to Medina right? and it's said that when they were approaching Medina 
it was uh, Abu Bakr's turn to ride, and the Prophet was walking. And people didn't know, like, who's who? They couldn't tell who's. They didn't know who's the Prophet, who's Abu Bakr. They didn't, because they never seen him before. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, uh, said so they're traveling outside Medina. They passed by this group of people. So he asked them, "Who are you?" And the people they said, "We are Muslims. Who are you?" And he said, "I am the messenger of Allah." <laughs> Can you imagine, Subhanallah? It's really like, "Who are you?" He's like, "I'm the messenger of Allah." Then a woman lifted up a boy, and she said, "Can this one go on Hajj?" Yeah, it's like there's, there's an experience related to it, right? Can this, she lifts up the child? She said, "Can this one go on Hajj?" And he said, "Yes, and you will have the reward. You have the reward for it." <laughs> so it's kind of cool, like. Uh, <clears throat> another hadith, a young man came to the Prophet them, and he said to him, I, want, I intend to go to Hajj. The young man came to the Prophet them, told him, I intend to go to Hajj. The Prophet then walked with him and said, May Allah give you piety as your provision. May He forgive your sin, and may He make goodness easy for you wherever you are. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful dua. May Allah give you piety as your provision. May He forgive your sin. And may he make goodness easy for you wherever you are. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sometimes when kids would come to pray, he would reward them in different ways. Uh, for example, there's a narration. It's not always like he gave them something, but he would reward them in different ways. Okay? Jabir ibn Samura, he said, I prayed along with Allah's Messenger in the first prayer. He then went to his family, and I also went along with him. When on the way, he met some children. He began to pat the cheeks of each one of them. He also patted my cheek, and I experienced coolness or a fragrance of his hand as if it had been brought out from the scent bag of a perfumer. So, so he, the smell, right? The smell of the Prophet Wasallam's hand was like the finest perfume. So when he pats the kid on the cheek, to tell them like, you know, good job, you prayed or whatever, that scent would stay with them. And they would, it would like, you know, scent's a very strong association. You guys know that. I've met people who were forced from their homelands who would smell a scent and start crying. And they would say, that flower, we had it in our country and I haven't smelt it for 30 years. Just the smell, right? So imagine they put their hand, the Prophet ﷺ puts his hand on someone, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it stays with them. <clears throat> There's another interesting story where it said, I don't know if this is, you know, how true this story is, but we'll just share it. That, you know, imagine when the Muslims conquer Mecca, and the Prophet them, what does he tell Bilal to do? When they get Mecca, what does he tell Bilal to do? Go on top of the Kaaba and make it then. Okay? First of all, this is a really important symbol. Like, the Prophet them, is actively engaging problems of racism in his society. So it's like, these people are used to slaves being from Africa and other places, but looking at people of his descent like this, and the Prophet Sallallahu tells him, go to the top of the Kaaba and make this Adhan. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's just a little song. Make the Adhan. And it said that some people, some kids, imagine you're a kid, you grew up in Mecca, you're kind of racist, and 
You see Bilal on top of the... <laughs> I think you, you're blocking her view. <laughs> are, you, are you okay? Their, their view is more important than my son. Uh, so they see him giving the adhan and they start to laugh. They're kind of making fun of him and stuff. They think it's a joke. Right? Like they're not Muslim. So there's kids, they're there and they're like, think it's a joke, they start laughing, whatever. So the Prophet ﷺ, when these kids start making fun of them, they start to mock the sound. They start to like pretend like they're making a then, you know, like, you know, do what kids do, they're mocking him. But one of them had a good voice. So the Prophet ﷺ, he, he heard them and he said, bring them all over here. They brought them all over and he asked them to make the adhan, like one by one. And you hear what you're saying, what you're saying, what you're saying. And he found the one that had a good voice and he's like, you stay here. And, uh, and he let the other ones go and he taught him the adhan. Uh, and some of the narrations of this, it's interesting. One of them, it says, the Prophet said, who is the one who, whose voice I heard so loud? And all the other kids pointed to me. The kid saying this himself. They all pointed to me. And he sent them all away, but he told me to stay. He said, stand up and give the call to prayer. And he said, I stood up and there was nothing more hateful to me than the Messenger of Allah sallallahu and what he was telling me to do. Because they're not Muslims, right? She's like, who is this guy? Like, tell me to stand here and make the adhan. He said, I stood up in front of the Messenger of Allah and the Messenger of Allah himself taught me the call to prayer. Then afterwards, the Prophet called him, put his hand on his, uh, like his head, passed it over his face and his chest, and then prayed saying, May Allah bless you and send blessings upon you. And then he said, O Messenger of Allah, do you command me to give the call to prayer in Mecca? And he said, Yes. And then he said, All the hatred I felt towards him disappeared and was replaced for love for, by love for him. Isn't that interesting? SubhanAllah. Yes. He's the one? It's in another narration he says that in the Shahada of the Adan I entered Islam. And so when I was when I redid it in Mecca, I would recite the same way that that Muslim witnessed it. That's beautiful. Inshallah. So you see this kindness, you see this love, you see this concern, right? You see the way that the Prophet did this. So you have to, we have to teach children to love these things. What's the best way to teach someone to love something? <coughs> for you to love it and for them to love you. If you love it and they love you, it's a good chance they're going to love it. So that's how love works. Right? Forcing doesn't usually work that way. I don't know if you see that. It's definitely in my bloodline. <laughs> Forcing doesn't usually work that way. The Prophet used to gently pat our shoulders at the time of prayer. And he would say, don't keep the road straight, do not differ from one another, lest your hearts will be afflicted with discord. So when the kids would line up to prayer, they're expecting the Prophet to come and like touch them and line them up. And put them in the right place. It's part of their experience of prayer, right? Is to be pushed in this way, or not pushed, but to be kind of like touched. 
know, get that tap on the shoulder, that touch on the head, whatever it might be. Um, these little things are actually important, you know. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. There's another thing about the way that the Prophet ﷺ dealt with people in situations that happened that I think is interesting. Oh, it's only 35 minutes so far. It's good. <clears throat> is that, and this is also something really interesting to think about. So we've had all these cases of how the Prophet ﷺ dealt with young people, right? But it's not only how you deal with a particular situation It's also that things can happen And who's watching Right So it's not only that the Prophet ﷺ dealt with young people in a particular way But when he's dealing with other people, they're watching Right So they're seeing how he's doing things And of course that's going to be really important as well So a Bedouin came and urinated in the corner of the masjid You guys know this, right? The famous one. The Bedouin came, urinated in the corner of the masjid. What was the floor of the masjid in the time of the Prophet? Sand, dirt. Yeah. It wasn't like a rug. Don't imagine a rug. And like someone comes in, uses the restroom on the rug, and they're like, go ahead, take your time. It's like sand and stuff, so they can clean it up easily afterwards. The Prophet didn't let them interrupt him, and they spoke to them afterwards. And he told, um, he told the people, you were sent That you were sent to the people, to the Muslims. You were sent to make things easy for people, not to make things hard for them. And the point of this is that, again, who's watching this? Right? They're seeing like, they're seeing this kind of interaction of the Prophet with the people that's very forgiving. It's very soft. It's very, um, you know, endearing. And in doing so, he's making um, he's making the masjid, in a sense, a welcoming place, right? In other cases, he did other things to make the masjid a welcoming place. For example, I don't know how it is in the other madhabs. Maybe. Sama can tell us if you remember, but uh, in the Hanafi school, the Imam is not supposed to say more than five tasbihat in Salat. So if the Imam is leading Salat and they're in Rukur, you have five. Subhanahu Rabbil Adim, Subhanahu Rabbil Adim, Subhanahu Rabbil Adim, Subhanahu Rabbil Adim. How many is that? Subhanahu Rabbil Adim. Then you have to move. It's not like wajib per se, but it's specifically detailed. That when you're leading a congregational prayer, you do not elongate things. When you go in sujood, you have five. You get up. If you're a really pious person, you want your salat to be long, so on and so forth, you do it in your sunnah prayer. You don't do it when you're leading people in prayer. There's, there's, and they're very particular on this. The Prophet them. there were people who, when they were in the prayer, uh, one time he got very mad. I think it was Mu'ad. Was it Mu'ad? Anyways, one of the senior companions, or like more knowledgeable companions, was leading Salat, and used to lead the Salat really long. Someone came and complained to the Prophet And when he spoke to him, he was very angry. He told him, A fatanun ant? A fatanun ant? Are you someone who's creating fitna? You're creating problems? 
Don't make the salat long like that. Because when you, when you lead the salat, there are elderly people, and there are young people, and there are people who have needs that they need to tend to. So don't do that. Right? So it's very interesting. Yeah? Sunnah prayers and stuff is different. Taraweeh and stuff is different. Those are all optional prayers. But the obligatory prayer, the imam is supposed to lead it in a way that makes it easier for people to come and go for the obligatory prayer. Because then they can come more often. Right? So this is also part of making the experience of coming to the masjid an experience that is uh, good for the people. And then again, as we mentioned, one of the other things he used to do is he would reward positive associations, the second one, train them gradually, positive associations, and uh, he would reward them in different ways. Oftentimes this was not by giving them something, but it was by making dua for them, or like teaching them something. It was, it was very meaningful, right? So, for example, Abdullah bin Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, one time he, um, the Prophet, I think it was when he was trying to, when he was going to make wudu. Anyways, he brought the water for him. He brought the water for the Prophet, the Prophet, sallallahu made the dua, Oh Allah, teach him wisdom and teach him interpretation. So he made like a very special dua for this, for this kid because he brought him something. Right? This is a gift. This is a way of rewarding him. I told you last week you might get my controversial, not so controversial take on positive discipline. It might come here. But I think a lot of people misunderstand it. But like sometimes he would reward people with particular things. Sometimes he'd reward them with dua. Sometimes we have sometimes people get punished for things, right? Like we do have hellfire in the end. And we do have paradise. And we do have God. They say the best way to worship Allah is to worship Allah because He's Allah. It's the absolute best way. It's like intrinsic motivation. Right? It's not because of, what do they say? There's no carrot and there's no stick. There's no reward, there's no punishment, it's just Allah. That's the ideal. It's, that's the good way to do it. But sometimes we do need those other things. Right? Sometimes we just need the fear of God in our hearts. Because we're about to do something that is really shady. And we need to just fear Allah. You know? And I mentioned last time this idea that, or before, that Muhammad Ali, rahimahullah, used to keep like a lighter or matches. And if he was tempted by, specifically by the opposite gender, he would like light the match and hold it over his hand, under his hand, and remind himself like hell is real. That's fire. You can't tolerate that. You can't tolerate other stuff. Like sometimes you need that extra push. But ideally, we worship Allah because He's Allah. We worship Allah out of gratitude. Prophet them when he prayed all night till his feet swole, they asked him, why do you do this? And he said, should I not be a grateful servant? should be a grateful servant, right? Is that because of reward or punishment or anything else? It's because of Allah. That's the ideal. But he would reward them sometimes in different ways. But again, this doesn't necessarily contradict positive discipline, so it's not. Like he made dua for them, he did different things. He let them pray next to him. For example, it says, I spent the night at my Aunt Maimuna's house. Allah's Messenger offered the Isha a prayer, then came to the house and prayed for Rakah and slept. Later on, he woke up and stood for the prayer, and I stood on his left side. He drew me to his right and prayed five Rakah and then two. You know? It wasn't like, I'm praying in the night, leave me alone. This is my personal prayer. It's my business. Go back to sleep. Right? The kid wakes up in the middle of the night in the prayer. And he takes him and he has him stand next to him and pray with him. And they have that experience together. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
He also, for example, like one of the ways that he would um, support kids is by giving them positions of leadership when they deserved it. Okay? Giving them positions of leadership when they deserved it. Uh, however, the really important thing here is that they deserved it. You know, uh, the principle is more important than the mo sometimes. So, like for example, uh, what's the principle? The principle is the most knowledgeable person leads the salon. If the most knowledgeable person happens to be younger, then they lead the salon. But, like, it's not just... Sometimes, we, I notice in, like, college campuses and Muslim organizations and stuff, sometimes we do the socialist version of Islam, which is like, it's time to pray. All right, who wants to lead this time? No. Sorry. It's not the Sunnah of the Prophet, Sunnah of the Prophet, Sunnah is... The most knowledgeable person leads us a lot. Period. To the extent that some schools are so strict on this, that if you're more knowledgeable and you read the Qur'an properly and so on and so forth, and someone leads us a lot and they don't read the Qur'an properly, your salah is invalid. Because you weren't supposed to pray behind them. <laughs> it's not, there's a system here. Like, again, sometimes Southern California Muslims in particular were very resistant to like hierarchy and structure and stuff. It's unbelievable how resistant we are in California. But there's a system to it. Like, the person knows, they lead. So everyone's like, oh, Samuel ibn Zaid, the Prophet them sent him to lead the army when he was 18 years old. Do you think he was 18 years old? Like, like the average kid in America who's 18 years old? Or like, did have the Rabba fi bayt al Like, literally, he grew up on the hands of the Prophet And his mother is Umm Ayman. And his father is Zaid. And he's Al-Hib, Ibn Al-Hib. He's the beloved, the son of the beloved. The Prophet Like this is a special 18-year-old. Even amongst the 18-year-olds in Medina, it's not like he just chose any of them. Put them in charge of the army. Yeah. What does your method say? Which, what does it say? Do you know? Are you sure? The Western Tafsir and Akra'um. I mean, I don't know the Arabic, but I remember reading in the list. It's whoever memorized the most Quran. I don't know. In the Hanafi school, it's Alamun. After the one That's how they interpret Akra'um. In the house is different. Yeah. In the house, the owner of the house has the right to lead the salat. But they also have the right to ask someone else to lead. Right? So. He has the, the he has the right, but even amongst the, I forget who there was two Sahaba, both of them knowledgeable in the Quran. I think it was Abu Musa and Ashari, and maybe Ubay or Abdullah bin Mas'ud. One of them visited the other one, and he said, "It's your right to lead." And he said, "But you're my guest. I want you to lead." And he led. So they they did this too. What I was saying was there's a hadith of the Prophet them says the Quran, the most in Quran, leads the salat. But the scholars actually differed on what does that mean. So, the Hanafi position generally is that it means the most knowledgeable amongst them. Uh, especially as it relates to, they usually include in here the rules of Salah. 
So, and, and, and the most knowledgeable in Qur'an amongst them is not the one who's memorized the most, per se, if it's not with proper tajweed. If it's not with proper tajweed, it doesn't really count in this equation. So like you can have someone who memorized the whole Qur'an, you can have someone who memorized one juz, the one who memorized one juz but it's correct, they have more right to lead the salah than the one who has memorized the whole Qur'an. Uh, is this going to cause problems potentially in a lot of places? Yes, it is, but, you know. But there's some difference of opinion on it. But, to say, what, what, am, what am I getting at? Say we have someone who's a young person in the community, and they've been studying with Shaykh Ibrahim, for example, Allah protect him and bless him and his family, Shaykh Ibrahim Uswan. And they've been studying with him, and mashallah, they read properly, and they read really well, and they know how to lead Salah, and stuff like that. And you want to give them a chance to lead, then give them a chance to lead. It's fine, it's no problem. It's good, right? But not just like anyone type thing, you know. Same thing with we want to give them a chance to do this or that or organize this or organize that. Just make sure they're prepared. Tell them what they need to know. Prepare them to do it properly. Let them take it seriously. So on and so forth. But he would do that. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He would teach them this. Like uh, he teach them who is the one who should lead the salat. The one who knows the most Quran. It's clear. And it happened to be a young person amongst them. Right? Imagine again. You're in the time of the Prophet. So I send them. Little, maybe like a little tribe that's in the desert becomes Muslim. And they leave like one of the young people, two of the young people in Medina to learn Quran and then join us later. So when they go back, who's the one who's going to lead Salah? There's a narration like this, right? That there was a group of youth who came and they stayed with the Prophet them, and they learned Quran with him and they did this and that. And then after a while, he noticed that they started to miss their home. They started to miss their families. And so he told them, go back to your family and let the one who's uh, in this case, the one who's oldest, because they all learn the same. So then in that case, let them lead the oldest. Anyways, in a tribal society, it's making a point, right? It's making a point that knowledge matters, that knowing what you're doing matters, so on and so forth. Omar did this also with Ibn Abbas, that he would keep him in his shura. And they were like, why do you keep this young kid in your shura? Right? Like... You have all these old people that went to battles with the Prophet them and all this stuff. Why do you keep Ibn Abbas here? So then he asked them a question one day. And he knew that none of them are going to be able to answer it. Only Ibn Abbas can be able to answer it. And he gave the answer. And then he told them, this is why I keep him in the gathering. He was, like thir- he was probably like 15, 16 years old at that point. 17, 18, you know. Because he was 13 when the Prophet them died. Anyways, let's finish this up. Practical tips on how to train your child to worship Allah. Number one, be aware, be aware that you are a role model for your child whether you like it or not. If they see you pray on time, they see you read Qur'an, they will also like to do that. Number two, encourage your child to memorize verses from the Qur'an, sayings of the Prophet them, and short prayers and reward him when doing so. Uh, Ibrahim ibn Adham, Ibrahim ibn Adham, who was an early righteous figure, he said, my father told me every time you hear a hadith and memorize it, I will give you a dirham. So I learned hadith this way. Okay, every time you go. So you learned it, right? It became a habit. Teach them the five pillars of Islam and get them to really understand it and feel it and so on. Teach them to pray when they're young, as we mentioned. Train them to fast as much as you can. Uh, as much as you can, but don't overdo it as well. Try to connect your child to the masjid. Support it. Connect someone to the masjid. Connect them to the gatherings of knowledge, the gatherings of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you're worried about taking your child for salah in the masjid, there's a really easy solution. Don't go at prayer time. 
Right? You can pray in the masjid when it's not prayer time. It's my favorite time to go, actually. Especially, I used to love to go to the masjid on Juma after Asr, between, between Asr and Maghrib. No one will be there. Sit in the prayer hall, it's empty, it's quiet, it's beautiful. And like, it's a beautiful time. And kids are always going to love the masjid. Why? Because it's an open, carpeted space. As soon as it's like an auto, as soon as they hit the rug, they're gone. So just bring them, let them pray, let them have a good time, let them run around a little bit. And, you know, it's okay. And then also that gives you a chance to teach them about the masjid. Like they, run a lot, they run around a little bit, then you can sit with them, say, okay, let's make dua. This is where the imam stands, this is what happens, this is this, this is that. When we come and other people are praying, we should try not to run in front of them. If we're praying with everyone, then we should try to control ourselves and not yell. And this is a time to teach them all these things. Right? People are always like, oh, we have to have kids in the masjid. We shouldn't. Yeah, it's true. We should have kids in the masjid. And we should also teach them that there are etiquettes of the masjid. And as they get older, inshallah, they'll understand it. When they're younger, it's harder to understand. And as they grow, they'll get, they'll get more and more used to it. And inshallah, we can kind of have like a balance there. And the last one he mentions is to train your child to give charity. Let them see you give charity and encourage them to give charity as well. I think that, you know, cash was a lot easier in this regard. Right? When you have cash and you drop it in the box, it's a lot different than like you go online and you click it. It doesn't feel the same, right? So, it's good, like, at least for this, it's good to keep cash. Some of the people of knowledge, they used to make it their tradition that when they go to Friday prayer, they take money with them to donate. That's why you see that in a lot of masajid. Friday is the big day. The masjids make money on Friday. Everyone comes, they used to be. Online stuff changed everything. But used to be people bring cash, they drop it in the box. They bring cash, they drop it in the box. You see a lot of times people come this when they teach their kids to do that too. They, bring, they, they give their kids some cash, the kid drops it in the box. They praise them, buy them some candy, something like that. You know, and these are good things. People learn these things, they have good associations with them. And uh, inshallah, it'll be a good thing. So we'll stop here. We're up to chapter 5 on developing morals. That finishes chapter 4 on worship. Any questions or comments? Things people want to share? Yeah. like now that the whole the whole business of parenting is figuring out what to do with your child whereas that clearly wasn't college through because there was always things to do yeah so then I mean and especially now because of the internet like what do you what's one to do because like it seems like it's like a, it's not made out to be a problem in the examples that you gave but now it's a genuine serious problem all well they don't have an iPhone if they don't have a computer. Mm-hmm. Do mm-hmm. I don't know how to repeat your question or your comment. How would you repeat it? It's a good comment. It's a good question. It's, uh, I don't know. Like, I guess it could be repeated as... What should parents have their children do if they're going to remain offline? <laughs> How to keep children busy if they're going to be offline? Yeah. And all these things are hard, and the pandemic is hard. Right? I mean, we are dealing with a very different society in Medina, right? 
for the most part, you're dealing with a society where everyone knows each other, number one. Number two, people aren't commuting and working outrageously crazy hours. Uh, number three, probably both parents are not working. Okay. Number four, everyone has kids. So like when you, when you have kids, one of the things you notice is as long as they have other kids, they're fine. They don't really need much toys. Like when, was, like when I was growing up, it would to like to drive home from school the whole time. You're thinking about going outside with the neighbors. Mm -hmm. Go outside, play with other kids. Yeah. yeah. But now it's become it's become very uh, like you don't trust people. Not necessarily for bad reason. Like, but there's just a lot of hesitation around trusting people, around protecting your children, around all the kinds of things that, uh, there's definitely extra challenges here. Mm, so, I don't, I don't, uh, I just think we, we have to try our best and we have to try to be creative. But sometimes we do have to put our foot down too. Like, I feel pretty strongly that children shouldn't have handheld devices. And by children, I mean, like, under 15. <laughs> so, Ismail asked me the other day, he's like, can I have an iPad? I was like, child, are you crazy? Like, you are, no, you cannot have an iPad. He was like, why? And I'm like, I told him, I was like, because it's going to destroy your brain. And Allah gave you your brain, and it's very important and it's going to destroy your brain. You're not going to be able to focus on anything. You're not going to be able to think about anything. You're not going to be able to play with toys. You're not, you're just going to, it's going to ruin you. And he might not fully understand it, but I told him that, you know, I don't know how it's going to go next year and the year after and the year after, but these things are really dangerous. So Allah help us. It's hard because that's the environment you're in. Like, it's one thing to tell a kid no when nobody else has to. But when, like, everybody has it, all their friends have it, that's what's everything around them. Everywhere they go in school, everyone has it. Like, that becomes really hard. So, I don't know. Raise them with the spirit of jihad. Like, you don't have to be like everyone else. Who told you you have to be like everyone else? Peer pressure? Jihaz. <laughs> Jihaz peer pressure? What is peer pressure? What are you talking about? You're not weak that you care about peer pressure. You stand on your own feet. You do what you want to do. You don't do what other people do. You know? Raise them with the spirit of jihad. <laughs> I don't know what the solution is. It's, you know, And I'm not making any claims. Allah help us. We're, we're, it's all easy when like your kid's still small. Honestly. We're getting on the border now. We're like Now we're going to have to really start dealing with all these things. Allah help us. Yes, sir. For themselves? Yeah. Yeah. For them, for women leading prayer, most schools allow women to lead prayer if the congregation is women. So, the Hanafis are kind of peculiar on this point, but... So, they generally don't like it. I don't remember why. I just kind of like never took it. Astaghfirullah, Allah forgive me. I'm such a bad Hanafi. I never like took it that seriously. <laughs> just like, you know. Uh, 
I'm not sure what their reasoning of it is, but but generally women can lead a woman congregation. Yes, Senna. What age are we talking about? Oof, six to nine. That's what I'm saying. Six to nine is very hard to teach. You know? I don't think, like, how do I say this? If you're, it's what I was getting at in the beginning. If you're specializing in Islamic studies, there's endless things to know. If you're not specializing in Islamic studies, you don't really need that much. I know this is, sounds like probably really bad, but you don't really need that much that we're like forcing kids that are really young to sit in classes and like learn this stuff. They're gonna, and then when they get older, they're learning the same thing and you're like, how come they're not learning anything new? It's like because you forced what they needed to know on them when they were seven, right? So like, it's a, it's a hard age. I would focus more on like storytelling, relationships, doing things. Like instead of telling them how to make wudu, you like sit and actually just all make wudu together. You take some water, go sit on the grass, maybe splash water at them, <laughs> splash water at each other, have like some fun, you know, and just make wudu, and then they understand how to make wudu. Um, but I think it has to be more. First of all, the textbooks are not always good in the first place, and then on top of that, it's not really textbook based. Like you kind of have to, like you remember this narration where we said that. The Prophet Ibn Abbas was on the animal, they were riding together. And he was behind him and he said, Oh young boy, let me teach you some things. Protect your relationship with Allah, Allah will protect you. If you ask, then ask of Allah. If you seek, then seek from Allah. They were just riding somewhere. Right? Actually one brother I knew, SubhanAllah, he's a Shaykh now. There was a time when he was a kid and there was a big Shaykh that was living with them because he had come to America for medical treatment. It's a really interesting story, actually. And he was staying in their house. And he said the sheikh, every morning, would ride with them to school. Isn't that interesting? He would get up, like, this is a big sheikh. Like, he's written books and stuff. You know, they're, they're known. So he would get up, and he would ride with the kids to school, and he would sit in the back seat, and he would teach them du'as and stuff. Like, when you're going this, you say this. And he would, like, memorize it to them. Tell them little stories, stuff like that. And that was how he taught them. So try, try to like make it light, make it fun. Focus on things that matter. Yeah. be some stuff out there but I'm not really familiar with kid stuff so like when I taught at New Horizon I made up the curriculum every week for every grade like fourth to eighth grade every week I was coming up with the curriculum because I didn't like what was there um, not I just you know it just didn't work for me and I know that 
if it doesn't work for me, then I can't make it work for the kids. So, I don't know, maybe we can talk about it. We should have like a meeting and talk about it and brainstorm some ideas. I'd be happy to. Anyone else have anything? I just wanted to offer, uh, I teach at the Sunday school at ICY and I teach third grade, so if I can provide any resources to help you. Yes, you guys should have a dinner meeting. When we have dinner right now, you should sit together at the table and talk and exchange ideas. That's where the magic happens. I'm supposed to announce this. We have the annual banquet for the Medjlis. I'm like the worst organizational person ever. You'll come every Sunday from now until the banquet. I'll never remind you that there's a banquet. You come every Sunday for your whole life. I, like every week, I'm supposed to tell people, you know, the Medjlis is a nonprofit organization. We rely on your donations. If you become monthly donor, it's really helpful to the organization. So I'm supposed to do that every so often. You probably haven't heard it from me ever, right? <laughs> I'm not really good at those things. So we have a fundraiser Saturday, April 2nd, 5 p.m. here. It's probably going to be like the first day of Ramadan, okay? And the guest keynote speaker is Imam Zaid Shafir. Alhamdulillah. Imam Zaid was our first ever speaker at the Majlis. And he was the first person, and he was the speaker at the fundraiser that we had in Arif's backyard. I think they left. Uh, uh, maybe they didn't. Arif and Fatima's backyard. And that was, what, that was the fundraiser that happened before we ever got a space. So he was the first event ever, then he was the fundraiser before we ever had a space. And then he was the first person to visit the space, subhanAllah. He happened to be here for MSA West, right when we got the keys. So he came and visited the space and made some thicker and stuff. And then, and then when we came here, I think he was the first person who came here too, wasn't he? When we had him as a guest and we were under there. I think he was the, fir- I think he was the only guest we've had here since we came here. See Imam Zaid? No, he's not the only one, but I think he was the first. So Alhamdulillah, Imam Zaid will be the keynote. Uh, 5 p.m. You can get tickets online, um, 2022majlisbanquet.eventbrite.com. And so we'll have dinner, we'll have a program, then we'll have iftar afterwards. And then of course, uh, New Horizon has tarawih with Sheikh Ibrahim. So those who want to stay and join tarawih, stay and join tarawih with Sheikh Ibrahim. Sheikh Ibrahim, by the way, <coughs> we're talking about people like Aqra'um, Sheikh Ibrahim is very high level. Not, not a whole lot of people are high level like that in terms of the quality of their recitation. Sheikh Ibrahim is very high quality. Stadabadia, also very high quality. Southern California is actually blessed. Has, to have two people like that in one region is actually really something. Uh, they're both really, really good. She's very strict. You can only get that good if you're very strict. You know, Sheikh Ibrahim, how, you know? MashaAllah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Sheikh Ibrahim is really, uh, he's very particular. You know, and they used to ask him to read the shorter style of recitation. And I see why he said, I can't, I didn't get ijazah in this from my Sheikh yet. You know how he gets ijazah from his Sheikh? His Sheikh is in southern Egypt. He goes on a plane, lands in Cairo, gets on the train, goes all the way to southern Egypt, 
finds a sheikh and sits with him and reads to him. That's, that's how he does it. So that he can come and lead tarawih and teach students and stuff. It's not like, uh, and he was like, I can't do it because I don't have that permission from him yet. Inshallah, we'll get it and then I'll do it. I think he got it since then. But, um, huh? Just have the badia and IOC. And she's really, really, really good too. I'm, sh- I'm sure you're really good too. Uh, she works with Sheikh Muhammad, Sheikh Ibrahim's brother. Oh, you were with Sheikh Muhammad? Yeah. Okay, mashallah. Very good, alhamdulillah. Sheikh Muhammad's good too. He's not as good as Sheikh Ibrahim. <laughs> Last I heard him. He might be now, I don't know. Last I heard him, at, he was he was improving. Mashallah. I'm not trying to be a jerk, I swear I'm not. And I'm not, I'm not that good either. But... Uh, like, you know, Sheikh Abdullah was here last week. You heard Sheikh Abdullah. Sheikh Abdullah is really good. And, uh, you know, people are really particular. There's, It's not everyone that you like is really good, actually. Actually, most of the people that everyone likes and, like, they're popular reciters and stuff, they're not actually really good in their tajweed. Their actual, like, itqan, their perfection in tajweed is not actually so strong. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're decent, sometimes they're whatever. But I'm just trying to say, like, <laughs> you know, like not every imam is the same as every other imam. Not every sheikh is the same as every other sheikh. Not every scholar is the same as every other scholar. Not every qari is the same as every other qari. There are people who are like at the top of their field. You know, and we're blessed that we have a number of people who are at the top of their field. That being said, if you can study with Sheikh Muhammad, if you can study with our uh, esteemed sister, if that's fine. You don't have to always... St- like, especially if you're a beginning person, you don't need to study with the best person in the world. <laughs> People do that. Americans always think they need the best. People land in Egypt, they didn't even learn Arabic yet. They're like, I want to study with Sheikh so-and-so. I'm like, Sheikh so-and-so is the top Madiki scholar in the world. Who told you you deserve to study with them? Like, pay your dues and then you'll, you'll get to study. It's fine. You know, uh, inshallah. Anyways, anyone else? Nothing? By the way, I love Sheikh Muhammad, just to be clear. Actually, on a personal level, let me stop the live stream.